Well, our sermon is going to be a little bit different today. Um, I'm not going to read the New Testament lesson and then preach on the text. I'm going to uh, preach and comment on uh, John chapter 14 through 16, as it were, in a running fashion. And we are celebrating uh, Pentecost today. And the Gospel of Luke opens with this powerful scene. And Jesus is with the disciples. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, which of course came with a little bit of risk, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which, Jesus said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. It's interesting, isn't it, that Jesus says, wait for the Holy Spirit. I told you about him. While we don't know everything Jesus taught about the promised Holy Spirit, we can be quite confident that much of his teaching is reflected in John's Gospel, which is the lengthiest and most abundant uh, place. While we don't... um, And this is the most extensive instruction Christ gave about the Spirit. And so it behooves us, this Pentecost, to understand the promises that the coming of the Spirit fulfills. The promises He made to the disciples... Because these are promises to us as well today. So I'm going to read through selections of this passage as we work our way through it. I encourage you to open uh, your pew Bibles in the ESV or if you have an app on your phone. Um, And there's really a broad threefold outline which is in the worship bulletin. First, from uh, chapter 14, verse 15. My Father will give you another advocate to be with you forever. That's our first point. The second point is this advocate, this paraclete, will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. That's later in chapter 14, verse 26. And down in chapter 16, verse 8, Jesus says, The paraclete will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. The paraclete, the Spirit, will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. So first... My Father will give you another advocate to be with you forever. This is uh, the point from which I drew the title for this sermon. We need to back up a little bit uh, to chapter 13. The context of this uh, sermon, this discourse, often called the farewell discourse, is the Passover. The setting is the Last Supper. And John sets the scene quite clearly back in chapter 13. Now before the feast of Passover... When Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. During supper, when the devil had already put it into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hand, and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. Seems we should have had a towel this morning as we got a little water everywhere. But Pentecost is a fitting occasion for a baptism. Jesus knew that his hour had come. What that means throughout John's gospel is the hour of the cross, the hour of his glorification. The hour when he would be lifted up and draw all men to himself. And this hour is characterized as him leaving, him going back to the Father. He who had been sent from the Father on a mission was going back to the Father. The supper is the last supper. 
And it's very telling that John doesn't give us details about the institution of the supper. I read somewhere this week, and I frankly forgot where I read this, but it's an interesting insight, uh, that, that John's gospel is like a sermon or a commentary on the gospel of Mark. It's very likely that John had Mark in his hands. And so what he's doing is he's filling all the gaps. It complements Mark and the other Gospels uh, very well. And so John's probably a member of the church in Ephesus. They're celebrating the Lord's Supper every week. He doesn't need to establish the institution of the Supper. It's well established in the church. And he calls to mind these precious words about Christ's promise of the coming Holy Spirit instead. He focuses his attention rather on Christ's departure. Teaching about his absence and the gift of the Spirit, which would be such a great consolation. And this very well could have been during a time of persecution and trial in Ephesus. It could have been since John is the last gospel writer, uh, late in that first century, maybe even in the 90s. And people are wondering, where is he? Right? These questions are rising up. Where's all the glory that he promised? We're suffering. And so that's where the teaching of the Holy Spirit is very valuable. Jesus washes their feet. He gives them a commandment of service. As he is preparing to serve them, John says, to the uttermost, to the cross. Jesus said, now is the Son of Man glorified, and God is glorified in him. If God is glorified in him, God will also glorify him in himself and glorify him at once. Little children, yet a little while I am with you. You will seek me. And just as I said to the Jews, so now I also say to you, where I am going, you cannot come. Jesus' cross is His hour, His glorification. And it glorifies the Father. But this glory of His death and resurrection and ascension requires Him to leave His disciples behind. He cannot be glorified in their presence. He must ascend to the place of glory, to the office of glory. Now there's a lot of confusion around this message. And again, John is preaching a sermon He's probably preaching to a congregation that's very confused as well, right? Not understanding Peter is the first to protest. Simon Peter says, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus answered him, where I am going, you cannot follow me now, but you will follow afterward. Peter said to him, Lord, why can I not follow you now? I will lay down my life for you. Peter Peter is bold, right? He wants to say, well, Jesus is going to serve us to the end. I will serve. I'll be right there next to him. You know what Jesus says next, right? Before the cock crows this night, Peter, you won't go with me. You will abandon me. You will deny me. Jesus' ascent to glory is the fruit of his perfect obedience, his perfect righteousness, his perfect faith. And it is powered by the Spirit. Jesus is Spirit-endowed at this point in time. Peter lacks what he needs. Peter doesn't have perfect obedience. Peter doesn't have perfect faith, as becomes quite clear. Peter lacks the Spirit. Peter cannot follow him, but he will be able to. Peter will be a martyr. Peter will go to his death serving Jesus and his church. But not before he has the promised Spirit. Peter hadn't received that baptism in the Spirit. Jesus seeks to comfort them further, and now I'm moving to chapter 14, verse 1, by telling them why he must go away. Now remember, at the beginning of John's gospel, we heard the word became flesh and tabernacled among us. God pitched his tent, as it were, a holy temple here on earth in the person of Jesus Christ. 
This is a promise of covenant promise that God would dwell in among with his people. And that is what Jesus does during his life. But now he must go away. Why? To prepare another dwelling place. Let not your hearts be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my Father's house are many rooms. If it were not so, would I have told you that I go to prepare a place for you? And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and I will take you to myself that where I am you may be also and you know the way where I am going. So you see, to to Peter's doubt, to Peter's fear, Jesus says, I'm going to take care of it. I'm going to take you with me. I will come back. There's a chorus of doubting questions born of the ignorance, the doubts, the fears. Thomas is the doubting one, remember? Lord, we don't know where you're going. How can we know the way? Great promise. Jesus responded to him. I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. And then Philip has a question. Lord, show us the Father. It's enough for us. Okay, this is easy. Just show us God. And Jesus said to him, Have I been with you so long and you still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Jesus is a little frustrated here. Do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? Some profound Trinitarian instruction going on here. The words I say to you, I do not speak on my own authority, but the Father who dwells in me does His works. Words and works are both referenced of how they have seen the Father in Jesus. His truth is the Father's truth. His miracles are the Father's miracles. Believe me that I am in the Father and the Father is in me, or else believe on account of the works themselves. The ancient church taught and reflected on this as the interpenetration, the perichoresis of the persons of the Trinity. They remain distinct, and yet we can say, I am in the Father, Jesus can say, we can't say this, and the Father is in me. Words and works both testify to the presence of God. Moses could only get a glimpse of God's backside. The vision of God would consume us, brothers and sisters. And yet in Christ, in the incarnate flesh, in the tabernacle, we are protected by His incarnate flesh from God's glory. And so Jesus is the Father dwelling with His people. Jesus wants them to see that they've seen the Father in the Son. That the Father has been present to them in the Son. But this doesn't mean that Jesus' departure isn't a real departure. Look at verse 12 of chapter 14. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. And greater works than these will he do, because I'm going away to the Father. You will do greater works than me because I'm leaving. Whatever you ask in my name, this I will do, that the Father may be glorified in the Son. If you ask me anything in my name, I will do it. Through faith in Christ, Jesus is saying, we will do the works of God, the same works He has done in the Father's power. So the Father is present in the Son, and the Son is present in us. If He goes away, we will do these works because He's left us. Jesus must go away for us to do these works. 
Jesus' departure will empower the church to heal, to forgive sin, to bring new life, to confess, to have faith. And what's the mechanism? How? How does this power come to us? This brings us to 14, verse 15. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. And I will ask the Father, and he will give you another advocate to be with you forever. Even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive, because it neither sees him nor knows him. You know him, for he dwells with you and will be in you. Jesus here introduces the Spirit of truth, and he calls him another paraclete. Our ESV Bible, I believe, translates with helper, and I use the word advocate uh, quite intentionally. Um, You have perhaps heard this also explained as the comforter. We had a church picnic in the park a few weeks ago, and uh, there was a procession from a neighboring church, the Church of the Holy Comforter. I'm referring to this passage. But outside the New Testament, this word, paraclete, um, is overwhelmingly used in a legal context. A paraclete is a legal assistant or an advocate in a court of law. I know we have more than a handful of lawyers here with us today. And I believe that that's the best translation here for a couple of reasons. Now, John is the only New Testament author to use this word. He uses it four times here in this upper room discourse. But he also uses it in 1 John chapter 2, verse 1. A text that is a part of our weekly liturgy. Something that I read every Sunday. My little children, I'm writing these things to you. This is 1 John 2, 1. I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father. Who is our advocate? Jesus Christ, the righteous one. He is the propitiation for our sins. That's how he advocates. He turns God's wrath from our sins. And not for ours only, but for the sins of the whole world. And by this we know that we've come to know him if we keep his commandments. Similar to as he does in John. That's a mark of the advocacy of Christ. The holiness that's worked into us. Obedience. How? How does this advocate help and console us. It's true, this is a helpful thing. But he helps us by advocating. Jesus Christ is our advocate with the Father. He stands in the heavenly courtroom in our defense attorney. He stands there proclaiming by the power of his blood to propitiate, to turn aside God's wrath. And now Jesus says, I'll send you another advocate. Notice he's saying, another one of me. I'm going to send you a mini-me. Over the last 15 years, um, I've gotten, may it please the court, brief, brief personal story. Uh, I've gotten two speeding tickets in North Carolina. And every time I've gotten a speeding ticket in North Carolina, when by the time I've gotten home, sometimes literally the next day, my mailbox was full of letters from lawyers in North Carolina who knew I got a speeding ticket. And that North Carolina requires almost every speeding ticket to appear personally in court. And so if they know from your driver's license that you live far enough away that you don't want to appear in court, they'll send you a letter saying, we can be your advocate. I can go to court for you. I hope that personal experience... I've learned the lesson. I don't want to learn it anymore. Michael Horton, author in his book on the Holy Spirit, has a chapter on this upper room discourse that, frankly, I'm drawing heavily upon this morning. But he titles that chapter, Trading Places. Trading places. Jesus is going to advocate for us in North Carolina, in the heavenly throne room. But we have here another advocate. They are a legal team. 
Now sometimes, I emphasize this point this morning, because sometimes we're tempted to see Jesus and the Spirit as different. Jesus dies for our sins, He defeats Satan, He's, he's a priest, He's a king, and the Spirit is a comforter. The Spirit's friendly. The Spirit's soft and cuddly. He dwells with us. But Jesus is here really emphasizing what they have in common. They're both advocating for us. The difference is where they're doing their advocacy. And the difference also is that the Spirit is with us forever. Jesus is not. Jesus has to leave. Jesus is really saying that the Spirit will stand in for him in his absence and will therefore be even more powerful than he could have ever been. When Jesus ascends to glory, he amplifies his power. He sits on his throne. He rules and reigns. He intercedes before God. But that same heavenly power that Jesus now possesses in his flesh, he distributes and shares with us through his Holy Spirit. This is why it's important. And the first point this morning is that the Spirit is another advocate that will never leave us. The second point, brothers and sisters, about the Holy Spirit that Jesus promises his disciples and to us as well, is that he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. This is verse 14, 26. This is why it is significant that Christ introduces this advocate as the spirit of truth. The spirit of truth. The world can't receive him because it doesn't know Christ. You only receive the spirit by faith. But we know him. He dwells with you and will be in you. John tells us further how this advocate will be a spirit of truth in and among his people. Verse 25. These things I've spoken to you while I'm still with you. But the advocate, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, he will teach you all things and bring to your remembrance all that I have said to you. Peace I leave with you. My peace I give you. Not as the world gives do I give to you. Let not your hearts be troubled, neither let them be afraid. You heard me say to you, I'm going away. And I will come to you. If you loved me, you would have rejoiced. Because I'm going to the Father, for the Father is greater than I. The first thing the Spirit, as our present advocate with us does, is point us back to Christ. Point us back to His words. Not another truth, not another gospel, not another piece of gospel-saving knowledge. Not a word of prophecy even emphasized here. And the first evidence we have of this Spirit's work, the first fulfillment of this promise, is the text we're reading this morning, the New Testament. The Spirit inspired John to write this Gospel in Matthew and Mark and Luke. And the peace that Christ gives as the Lamb of God taking away our sins is the same peace that the Spirit gives. He doesn't just give us warm fuzzies. He points us to what Christ is doing for us presently. The dwelling place of God is with man. And the ascension, when Jesus goes away, underlines for us the profound truth that our glory is not ultimately found in this world. It's not by cultural transformation. It's not by electing proper political leaders that our world is glorified and transformed. It's in heaven where Christ is ruling and reigning and in His coming glory of the new creation. Jesus doesn't want His disciples to be disappointed in His absence. He doesn't want the church to be sorrowful in its suffering as they're made like their suffering Savior. That's why he gives them this promise. This is why Jesus in chapter 15 explains the relationship with his father and with his disciples. It's a beautiful metaphor and it fits in here with the Holy Spirit. Jesus is the vine. His father is the vine dresser. And we are the branches. 
The branch abides in the vine and draws its life and power from it. Abiding in John's gospel is faith. It is belief. Thus the Father is glorified as the branches abide in the vine and bear fruit. The implication of this sermon is that it is the Spirit who unites us to Christ. He is the vine growing rich in glory in His heavenly glory. Bearing much fruit and all of that fruit is showered down upon the church. The prophet Zechariah talks about the coming Holy Spirit as olive trees growing and that their branches just dump the oil straight into a lamp. So like an eternal flame, the oil glows in the lamp and never runs out of oil because the olive trees are just feeding it. That's a picture of the church. We're the lampstand of God glowing with His power. The cross they're about to witness, the cross of Christ, will be taken up and borne by them as well. And the Spirit will empower their witness to Jesus, their crucified King, the Lamb that was slain. When the Advocate comes, whom I will send to you from the Father, verse 26, the Spirit of truth who proceeds from the Father, He will bear witness about me. Again, it's all about Jesus. And you also will bear witness because you have been with me from the beginning. It's the Spirit who will keep them from falling away. With the Spirit, Peter will not deny Christ three times. Peter will stand and will speak boldly. The apostolic witness is preserved through God's Holy Spirit. And even should they be killed for their faith, he references their death here. The Spirit confirms that they will know the Son and the Father and will go to Him as well. And this brings us to our third and final promise. He will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. We read about this in chapter 16, verse 4 and following. I did not say these things to you from the beginning because I was with you. But I am going. See the theme of him going away. Nevertheless, I tell you the truth. It is to your advantage that I go away. For if I do not go away, the advocate will not come. And when he comes, he will convict the world concerning sin and righteousness and judgment. Concerning sin, because they do not believe in me. Concerning righteousness, because I go to the Father and you will see me no longer. And concerning judgment, because the ruler of this world is judged. When the Spirit comes, he takes what belongs to Jesus and he declares it to us. The Spirit convicts the world concerning sin, righteousness and judgment. Mike Horton argues that this promise of the Spirit is fulfilled on the day of Pentecost. Peter's preaching convicts the people of their sin. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. That's what preaching does. It convicts us of our sin and our need for salvation. But the purpose of that convicting power of the Spirit is not to leave the world in sin and guilt and judgment. It is to point to the righteousness of Christ, our advocate in heaven. And Peter says in his Pentecost sermon, God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death, because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Jesus Christ couldn't remain in the tomb. Death had no power over him because he was sinless. And so the risen Christ is the resurrection which the Spirit convicts the world of. And finally, the Spirit also convicts of judgment. Death can't hold him, and death can't hold those who believe on him. And that day, some 3,000 were saved because they turned to him in faith. It is by the power of the Holy Spirit that we have heard and known everything that we have ever heard and known about Jesus Christ, about our faith. 
We who have been born from above by the Spirit are able to see the crucifixion, the cross of our Savior, the death of Christ in a new light, not as a tragedy, but as a sign of forgiveness and healing and hope. Even of those who have seen the Son have seen the Father, so too those who have the Spirit have Christ. The persons of the Trinity, all their works outside of them are coordinated. They work together. And Sinclair Ferguson, the great teacher, believes that this is what Jesus meant when he says, I will not leave you as orphans, but I will come to you. He comes to them in his spirit. He comes to us in bread and wine and in water today. Jesus is referring to Pentecost. Ferguson writes, so complete is this union between Jesus and the other paraclete that the coming of the latter is the coming of Jesus himself in the power of the spirit. Jesus will be with his people in a more intimate way after his ascension than before because his spirit will live within them and unite them to Christ. Brothers and sisters, Jesus is with us. And in conclusion, I would just point out that this is the way that the New Testament speaks. The Apostle Paul says, You, however, are not in the flesh but in the spirit. If in fact the spirit of God dwells in us, he does. Anyone who does not have the spirit of Christ Notice, they're interchangeable. does not belong to Him. But if Christ is in you, although the body is dead because of sin, the Spirit is life because of righteousness. If the Spirit of Him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, He who raised Jesus Christ from the dead will give life to your mortal bodies through His Spirit who dwells in you. You see, the Spirit, through the Spirit, Jesus dwells in our hearts. But we know that His flesh is dwelling in heaven. And that same Spirit is testifying that that resurrection victory is our victory. That we will join Him. We will go where the forerunner has gone. We are strengthened with power through His Spirit in our inner being that Christ may dwell in our hearts. Not physically, but through faith. Let us pray. Merciful God, we thank You for Your Holy Spirit. We thank You for the mystery of the Trinity. That God, the Father, Creator God, planned... And through His Son executed and now through the Spirit applies to our hearts. This amazing grace that takes away our sin, our guilt, our shame. Gives us peace. And fulfills that promise that the dwelling place is with God. As our risen Christ is building and preparing that heavenly tabernacle. Where we as living stones will dwell and God will dwell in our midst. Lord, we long for that day. We long for that holiness. We long for that joy. Give us a foretaste now by your Spirit. Come, Lord, quickly. Amen.